There was a, uh, a book that came out a few years ago titled uh, The God Gene, How Faith is Hardwired into, the, into Our Genes by a scientist named uh, Dean Hammer. And in this uh, book, the author explains how he applied the same methods he used to study the genetic you know, predisposition to smoking in certain people to study the genetics of spiritual people and basically, in the end, established a, uh, 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 he isolated a spirituality or what he would call a self-transcendent uh, gene, the God gene. The study went something like this. Take a group of people who have the characteristics of being spiritual, whatever that means, Study their genes to see if a significant number of them have any similar variants, which he did. And lo and behold, he isolated a gene. He noted that there were two different versions of this gene, and the people who had scored higher on his spirituality assessment uh, tended to have at least one copy of the same version of this gene, a gene he gave the name VMAT2, the God gene. So there we have it the evolutionary explanation for why some people find God, and some don't. Now, many, uh, many questioned the validity uh, of his, uh, his study, both uh, scientifically and theologically, of course, but Mr. Hammer does raise a very good question. Why do some people come to know God and others don't? And more specifically for this study of John, why do some people recognize Jesus for who he is and others just can't seem to see it? They can't seem to accept him no matter what he does before them. Well, I think our text this morning um, gives us a clue into this question because if you've looked at the text at all and really all of chapter 7, you can't miss the variety of opinions about Jesus that all seem to to miss the mark. There are at least five distinct and wrong opinions about Jesus in this section. Yet according to verse 31, when you get all the way to verse 31, despite all the false conclusions, there are some who believe. Verse 31 says, yet many of the people believed in him. Why is that? Why is it that some people come to believe, but other people, no matter what, just won't believe it? Is it genes? Is it genetics? Well, not according to Jesus. Let's look at the first five verses of our text. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go up about in, in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews... Feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, that last verse we read, uh, it kind of catches us off guard. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' brothers, his own flesh and blood, they don't believe in him. 
And it's a bit surprising considering what we just read because in verse 1 and 2, it's clear that the brothers are encouraging him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles uh, to show off his stuff. Right? They, they know he can do miracles. They say, go. Don't do this stuff in private. Go do it. That all may see. Of course they believe he can do miracles, if you think about it. They've been with him from the beginning. They were at the wedding in Cana. They, they saw the water turn to wine. They witnessed him heal the official's son when he wasn't even there just by his word. They were there when the 38-year paralytic rose to full health at the simple words of Jesus, get up. They ate the bread with the 5,000 on the hill. They saw and experienced all of it, and now they're encouraging him to do more, yet they don't believe in him. I find that interesting because so often the objections you hear from skeptics, especially today, are you know, evidentiary in nature, right? They say, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just have witnessed Jesus personally and heard his amazing teaching and watched his powerful works, then I would believe. Of course they would. I mean, seeing is believing, right? Well, no, it's not. Jesus' brothers show us this. You can't get any more up close and personal with Jesus than they were. They had direct access. They had all the evidence. They even had the right genes, didn't they? I mean, if anybody ever had the God gene, a genetic predisposition to believe, it was these guys. Yet they don't believe. Not really. They don't get who Jesus really is and what he's about. They've not put their faith in him as their divine savior, God's king. So what's the problem? What's keeping them from believing? Well, I think it's a couple of things. And the first part, the first aspect, I think we get it hinted at in verse 7. Where Jesus says this to them. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Why don't they believe? Because they're part of the world. The world that hates Jesus doesn't hate them. They're part and parcel of the evil world that rejects Jesus. Flip back to John chapter 1 with me for a second. Chapter 1, verse 10. Yes, John chapter 1, verse 10. This is what it says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Flip to John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. This is the world they're part of. And it's not so much that they're in the world physically, but it's the world that's in them. 
They are worldly. They live and think in a worldly manner with a worldly mindset and thus their their criteria for judging Jesus, for deciding whether he is speaking the truth, whether his claims about who he is are true, is worldly. They have this worldly grid. And there are several aspects to their worldly criteria for judging him that are revealed here. And I want us to consider them for the next few minutes because I think they're they're universal. They're the same issues we have today. And the first one is this. The first part of their grid is the glory of man. Jesus' brothers are not accepting and believing in him because he's not accepting and receiving the glory of man. The acceptance and the respect of the populace, the admiration and celebration of the people. See, Jesus doesn't have that. In fact, in the last chapter, thousands of people who were following him all walked away. So for his brothers, it's like, can he really be right? I mean, when everybody thinks he's wrong? When nobody's with him? I think this is why his brothers are urging him to go to the Feast of Booths, where the masses will be, And do his stuff. Show off the miracles. They want him to get out of the the backwaters of Judea and go prove himself in the big city. They want him to be, as it says in verse 4, openly known. Popular. Because if he can gain acceptance and, and, and praise from the masses, the majority of the people, it will bring legitimacy, right? Then, then maybe they'll accept his claims. I mean, he's got to be right in some sense if everybody thinks he is. Then they will believe. I know it sounds a bit flawed, right? When we say it straight out, it sounds kind of like might makes right. But this is worldly thinking. Even today. This is often how we come to our decisions about what we really think is true. We look at the majority vote, what everybody else thinks, what's the popular consensus, what's the group think, what's trending in social media, what do my friends say? How can it be right if everybody's saying it's wrong? How can it be wrong if everybody's saying it's right? It's not clear thinking really, but it's what we do. This is how some of the greatest atrocities in history have come about, right? Some charismatic leader has risen up, gaining the glory of man, the praise of the masses, so that they blindly accept his voice as truth until he's leading them into some mass genocide. Just think of Hitler. Everybody's doing it. This is how people are assessing and shaping the moral norms of our society as to sexuality and the value of life. What does everybody else think? What's popular? What's trending? And if you think you don't do this, if you think you're not swayed by the opinion of the masses, what's normal in society, then you probably don't know yourself very well. And this is how people judge Jesus and his 
teachings. Just worldly thinking. It's not about rigorously considering his teachings, whether they make sense, whether they're right, logic. It's just simply, is Christianity popular? Does Jesus have the glory of man behind him? It's interesting because Jesus, uh, later when he's teaching at the feast, he says such criterion actually gets in the way of knowing the truth. Look at verse 18. I love this. As he's interacting with them, he says this, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You see, Jesus could have gone to the feast in self-promotion, right? In in a total self-promotion mode by his own authority and power. He could have arrived early and set up a stage in in a strategic area of the temple out in the court somewhere so all could witness him and, and do miracle just watch him do miracle after miracle, demonstrate his power and authority. And the people probably would have gone crazy like they did at the, at the Bread of Life miracle. They would have wanted to make him king. But he would have interfered with the Father's plan for him to go to the cross, to be lifted up in death for the salvation and glory, our salvation and the glory of the Father. According to verse 6 and 8, it says it's not yet his time, and he knows it. That's why he goes later. He goes privately. So to do that would just show that Jesus is really about his own glory. Go on my own authority. I'm about my own glory. Show that he's not really about the the self-sacrificial truth of the gospel that would lead him to the cross and to the glory of the Father. So he holds back. He goes late to the feast. He teaches quietly, selflessly following his Father's agenda. John Piper calls this the self-authenticating character of Jesus. He says, if you ever meet a man who cares nothing for the praise of men, but whose one controlling desire is to glorify God, whom he loves with all his heart, Believe that man, he is true. My friends, Jesus' selfless, God-glorifying character is the clearest and most valid evidence to his claim. But if you're caught in worldly thinking, seeking the glory of, of worldly acceptance of the masses, you will never get this. You'll never believe. You'll never see him. The glory of man. Now there's a second factor in the worldly judging of Jesus that's going on here. And that is the fear of man. See, it's not just the glory of man, what people think of of Jesus that affects their judging. But the fear of man, what people will think of them. Look at verse 11 with me through 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the peoples, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he's he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You see, the crowds are talking about Jesus. Jesus. 
They're weighing and debating amongst themselves who he is and what he's about. But there's this heavy factor weighing in. And that is fear. The fear of, of the Jewish leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees who hate Jesus. This is mostly a Jewish crowd, and, 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 and the, these guys are the, are the religious elite. They're the societal leaders. So if some of the Jewish crowd were to believe in Jesus, that might mean they would be ostracized from the synagogue, looked down upon by the establishment, called blasphemers maybe. This would affect their families, their, their social status. So this weighs upon their judgment. And they're thinking, of course it does. They can't even speak openly. They have to whisper about Jesus. And this hasn't changed. We like to think that we, we come to truth decisions with kind of the, the integrity of, of open minds, just neutrally considering the facts and the courage of will to accept whatever conclusion seems right. But the fear factor is always weighing in. What will this mean with my friends if this is true? What about the guys at work? What about my professors at school? What will they think? I think verse 15 hints at, at this kind of pressure, especially uh, with the, the scholars. Look at verse 15. That the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning, they're referring to Jesus here, has learning when he's never studied. I love that. How is it that this man has learning when he's, when he's never studied? They marvel at what he's saying. It's amazing and profound. But wait a minute. Does he have the credentials? Has he been to the right schools? Is he respected by the establishment? The academic world? See, not only is our judging affected by kind of the, the popular vote, but also by the scholarly consensus, isn't it? What the experts think. They hold sway. They hold power. You don't want to disagree with them. Which is kind of scary when you think about, you know, much of the experts' opinions in hindsight. They don't often get it right. Have you noticed that? I love those ads from, like, back from the 40s that were, like, in Life magazine. They show a doctor taking some kid's temp. It's kind of a, a Norman Rockwell picture setting. Everybody's smiling. And then you notice, like, a cigarette hanging from his lips. And it says at the bottom, you know, 70% of doctors recommend Lucky Strikes for a healthy lifestyle. What? Got that wrong. What about Y2K? How could so many experts have been so wrong? What about some of the expert environmentalist predictions that everybody was on board with 20 years ago? We would all be underwater or burned to a crisp, according to many. And it's not that the environment is not important. We are called to care for it as Christians. I'm not knocking that, but how could experts be so wrong? Yet we fear them. 
They weigh in heavily as we make judgments, even on Jesus. There are, these are some of the major factors of a worldly mindset. The glory of man and the fear of man. And when they dominate in us, we'll be blind to the truth of Jesus. He could do miracles in your front yard and you could have five God genes and you won't know who he is. You may call him a miracle worker, a deceiver, an amazing teacher, a good man, but you will never call him Lord and Savior. Now you may be saying, Carrie, this, this seems pretty bleak. But just wait, there's more. It gets worse. Look at verse 16 with me. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, if someone really wants to know if he is the real thing, sent from God, speaking for God, the Savior he claims to be, they just have to be willing to do God's will. In other words, the other factor besides the world when it comes to truly knowing Jesus for who he is and believing is the will, isn't it? On the one hand, we have the world man is in, and on the other hand, we have the will in man. And this factor, I think, is probably, probably the core factor. Jesus is, you see, he's focusing the responsibility here, moving it from external in the world to internal in the will and our heart. He's not letting anybody off the hook. No one can say, it's not my fault that I don't believe. Look at the world I was raised in. The skeptical, scientific Western world that shaped my input in thinking, it's just the grid I have, I can't help it. I can't break out of it. It's not my fault. Jesus says to that, if you want to know the truth, you just have to be willing to do God's will. The struggle's not intellectual, he says. It's moral. Why will some people never come to know God, to believe in Jesus, even if they are his own brothers with front row seats to all his miracles? Answer, because they don't want to. They can't believe because they won't believe. They can't grasp the true glory of Jesus because they don't want to submit their will to the will of the Father. They don't want to deal with the implications of the fact that their life is not about their own glory, but about the glory of God. Now, it's easy to, uh, to point to examples of this, this, this will set against believing out there in the world, right? You can think of that, that skeptic who keeps 
peppering you with the same old questions that you feel you've answered from just about every different angle and you've given them books to read and articles, but they just keep recycling the same questions with with really no replies to your answers. And after a while, it's kind of obvious. This is about their will, their rebellious will. They, They don't want God's will. They're not interested in the truth. They don't want what it will mean for their life. What it will mean for their friendship, what it will mean for their family life, the changes they will have to, to make. We can point to those obvious ones where we go, it's like I can see it. But what we need to remember as we deal with this text is that Jesus is talking primarily to the Jews here, to the people of God. That's who he's interacting with. You see, an unwilling Heart doesn't always look like worldly rebellion. It can look like righteous devotion. It can look like right here. Here these Jews are. They know God's will. They have it laid out in their law. He gave it to them directly. They know his desire for their holiness and sanctification. And Jesus says... If you desire to do it, you will know me. If you desire to do God's will, you will know I speak the truth. And they seem to be trying to to do God's will, right? They they seem to be trying to keep the law. Clearly, they're, they're keeping up with the external rituals. They're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. So how come they don't recognize Jesus? Well, Jesus gets to the bottom of it in the last part of our text. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, right, the the will of God? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? See, Jesus simply points out that even though they have God's law, and are doing the rituals, their heart's desire is clearly not to keep it and please God. How does he know? Because they're trying to kill him. It's against the law, by the way. Jesus knows their hearts better than they know themselves, and their spiritual, their superficial adherence to the law isn't fooling him. They have no real desire to do God's will. So Jesus goes on to explain and illustrate their superficiality when it comes to doing God's will and keeping the law. Look at verse 20 through 24 with me. Let's read through this section. It's a bit hard. The crowds answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Obviously, they didn't know what the leadership was doing. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. Like I said, it seems a little bit confusing without background. But the basic idea 
is that although they've clearly worked very hard at adhering to the law concerning circumcision, here's his example he gives, even making a special exemption for when it needed to be done on the Sabbath. You see, circumcision was to be done on the eighth day. So if when your child was born the eighth day then fell on a Sabbath, well then how could they do circumcision because that was a work and then they would be working on the Sabbath so they had this contradiction, but they made a special exemption claiming that since it was for healing, a perfecting of the body, they said, it was, it was okay. So they had fixed it all up so everything could appear righteous with no infraction. They would still kind of be good legally. And Jesus says, even though you went through all that rigmarole to follow the details of the law, you don't get it because when I healed a man's whole body on the Sabbath, Referring to the the paralytic back in chapter 5 where he healed him on the Sabbath and and raised him up. I should say the crippled man. He said, when I did that, you were angry. The whole man was healed, which is what the Sabbath is all about. And actually what circumcision prefigures, prefigures, but you don't see it. They're just angry that he broke a rule. Their religion had become all about surface and appearance, and they had lost the substance, the very desire to honor God, to do his will. Thus he says in verse 24, don't judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. You see, we all need to examine ourselves this morning. If you're a staunch atheist who has rejected Jesus, is it really because you've honestly considered his claims and looked into his life, given the Bible a real hearing? Or does it have to do more with the glory of man, popular opinion, the norms in your circles, the consensus of the experts? Is your rejection really just unthinking cultural bias that suits your selfish will and the desire for your own glory? Or maybe you're not really a a staunch atheist. You wouldn't put yourself in that category, but you've always just stayed on the line about Jesus kind of stayed neutral. You're attracted, but you haven't looked into it that hard. You really haven't let yourself. Why is that? Is that the fear of man, what it might mean for your family, what it might mean for your dating life, what it might mean for your friendships? Remember, staying neutral isn't safe. Jesus claims that he is the only way to God, the only way to forgiveness, the only way through death to resurrection life. So it matters whether he's true and right. By the way, many people, thousands and thousands of people of the years have looked into Jesus and not found his claims wanting, including many here. You might want to give him an honest look. You might want to really consider the cost, consider his offer. 
We have a course called Christianity Explored that we're going to be starting where you can do that. Really consider for yourself as we look at the Gospel of Mark. And maybe you're here today as a religious person or at least or a Christian religious person even. But the truth is, it's a facade. An outward appearance of godliness. Maybe a facade that you're even deceiving yourself with. You're part of the Christian family. You go to church. You know the scriptures. You know God's will. But the truth is, it's your will that dominates your soul. There's no deep desire to please the Lord and glorify the Father to pursue his holiness and sanctification in your life, if you're honest. If you're honest, you know that you you pick and choose which scriptures you find reasonable to apply into your life and rationalize the others away. Your, Your will dominates. This text is a warning that we examine ourselves. You may, you may not know Jesus at all. Like his brothers, you may, in a sense, know him well. You, you've been in his proximity your whole life. You're part of the family externally, but you really don't know him at all. And you don't believe. If that's, if that's you, I want to say, there's hope. One thing we know from the scriptures is that some of Jesus' brothers do come to believe. James, the writer of the book of James, is the brother of Jesus. He changed his mind. He gave over his will. I'm not sure which came first in that. And he was saved. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that your son didn't ultimately come just for his glory, but for your glory and to serve us for our salvation. Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us here by your spirit that integrity of mind and heart to really look into him, to really examine his teachings, and then examine our own souls, our own hearts, our wills before you. Lord, may you act upon us. May you make us our true children. May your son be our savior. Amen.